I think what you're seeing really is a conversation about not only improving the customer experience on sort of the point of sale and what you see on the mobile device and the website, which has transformed itself for the last five years. And I think now it's more sophisticated than that. Now it is really not about digitizing the sales experience. Now it's about digitizing the entire retail supply chain. Good afternoon. I'm Matt Rubel, and we are here at the big show. That's right, the big National Retail Federation annual show. And we're here with the CEO of the National Retail Federation, Matt Shea. Hello, Matt. Matt, how are you? It's good. We have uh, two Matts, and we're going to have a great discussion here. I have to think that this past year, with all that went on in Washington, D.C., with you overseeing the largest trade organization in retail, that there was a lot to deal with. Interesting times. Matt, I think against the backdrop of overall a very healthy consumer and a reasonably strong economy, we had uh, a lot of momentum taking the economy in one direction, which was consumption and spending and consumer confidence. And then we had this counter momentum, which was largely related to the uncertainty around trade and the unpredictability of the future for businesses with regard to making longer term investments and how that would impact business investment and capital expenditures and how that flowed through to the rest of the economy. So on the one hand, we saw a lot of strength. On the other hand, we saw a little bit of inconsistency because it wasn't distributed evenly across the entire economy. And so the trade issue really was a meaningful distraction uh, over the course of the last, really started in, in the summer of 2018. We almost went from completing tax reform at the end of 2017, where everyone thought, okay, this is a real positive development. And then we went right into uh, something that was properly perceived as a real impediment to growth. And given the strength of the economy, I think policymakers were able to leave that uncertainty hanging out there without really crashing the economy because it was so strong they could afford to shave a couple of points off. And even if it costs, by our studies, tariffs hurt the heartland, uh, Americans for free trade, 60, 70 billion already. It was sort of like, eh, it's, what's 60 or $70 billion in a, in a 20 trillion economy? It's, it's noise. I mean, it really just comes down to you're going to have a, an increase in the prices of goods right. if you end up increasing those tariffs. But We've gotten through kind of to the other side, but the North America free trade agreement yes. being redone and with the China agreement just coming to kind of at least phase one, as it's called, just coming home today. We've gone through what one would call a New York style real estate negotiation in front of the rest of the world where you never know where the end will be. But we're coming to a landing. Is it a good place? I think on balance it is because while there are going to be observers on all sides of both of those trade deals who will find them more or less positive depending upon their unique perspectives or maybe lacking in some ways in terms of how far they go. There are enough beneficial elements to both of those deals that overall it will be good uh, for the industries affected. It will be good for bilateral trade or in the case of NAFTA, trilateral trade. And most importantly, it removes 
uh, a substantial amount of that uncertainty about what may happen next. And so simply, right. simply a pause on the China phase one deal, at least a pause in the escalation sends a very positive signal to the market. And with regard to U.S., Canada, Mexico uh, replacing the old NAFTA, the absence of any agreement would have been enormously disruptive to the economy. So you know, if the president and the administration had said, well, if we don't get what we want, we're going to walk away from NAFTA, that would have been horrific. And so both of those things, you know what? They're pretty good. Neither one is perfect, but both are better than what could have happened. So when you bring it home, that's what's behind us. We kind of had the ups and downs of getting there, but you've got how many people here? 40,000 at the convention this week, a record crowd. I think the last time was 34 or 35,000 was the most you've ever had come. I've noticed there's technology booths. There's all sorts of things around logistics and transportation, new ways to deal with that. What are the three or four really emerging technologies and trends that you're seeing happening? I think one thing that we could both reflect upon is that, say, a decade ago, just to use that as the measuring stick, that that this event has gone from 20,000 people, primarily domestic audience, talking about retail, to 40,000, twice as many people across a global audience talking about technology. And it's really gone from a domestic retail show to a global technology show. And that's reflective both of the change uh, in retail, but also more broadly speaking, the change in consumer expectations, consumer behavior, uh, and the way in which companies in all industries engage with their customers. And it's put a premium on the ability to deploy that technology, identify it, deploy the right technology uh, in the right ways. And because different companies have different capabilities with regard to scale and resources, there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a, a single answer for every company. But at this event, I think what you're seeing really is a conversation about not only improving the customer experience on sort of the point of sale and what you see on the mobile device and the website, which has transformed itself for the last five years. And I think now it's more sophisticated than that. Now it is really not about digitizing the sales experience. Now it's about digitizing the entire or retail supply chain, all the way from yeah, design, all the way through sale. You've got to be able to have what the customer wants. And in order to do that, you have to design it up front. And so you really have to connect all the way through to the consumer. But let me ask you a question. I mean, you and I were at a dinner the other night with um, possibly the largest digital uh, marketplace in the, in the world, um, uh, Alibaba, and with the president of Alibaba Group, Michael Evans. And I think one of the conversations was not just around that we are enabling things to happen faster, but that things are coming at us faster. So as a business person out there planning their business today, how do they know what to invest in in technology? Because things are changing. You've got AI. You've got how do we deal with retail. We've got robots in stores. You've got different ways to connect with consumers. You've got live broadcasting. Buy it now. The old marketplace that you had in your local community is now broadcast to millions of people. How do people kind of get their head around what to do uh, in what order? Because it's going to change tomorrow. That's right. And, and I think you observed quite correctly that it's the velocity, the pace of the change that these individual companies are experiencing that is the thing that can be so disruptive and create opportunities as well. As we see new entrants come into the marketplace over the last five to 10 years, many, many companies that are here this week, retail companies 
or direct to consumer retail companies didn't exist a decade ago or were different versions of themselves a decade ago. And we also represent at the NRF uh, the very largest retailers in the world, like Walmart, all the way down to some very small single unit individual operators in small towns uh, and large towns across America. And they're all here this week. And, you know, your question reminds me of a comment that Mark Laurie, the global head of e-commerce for Walmart and the founder of Jet.com and Soap and Diapers and Quincy.com, said at one of our events a few years ago when talking about technology, including many of those that you just discussed, whether AI and robotics and AR and VR and machine learning. And, and Mark's observation was, well, don't, don't be distracted because there is so much, to your point. And you come to an event like this with nearly a thousand exhibitors take up the entire convention center here in New York City. It could be overwhelming. But Mark's observation was, don't be distracted by the technology because remember at the end of the day, the technology is simply supposed to make you a better merchant or better at whatever it is you do. And more convenient, you know, quicker, better pricing, whatever. Right. I mean, the key drivers of purchase intent in retail haven't really changed. Convenience drives it, brand assortments right. drive it, pricing drives it, things that are loyal and consistent, aspiration. So those are really the tools that are now being brought forward. So your counsel then, as I'm understanding it, would be don't get all married to the glammy new things, but really get down to the fundamentals of who's your consumer, how are you addressing them, and what's the thing that's Absolutely making them right. want to be with you, and then find the tool that enables that most Absolutely right. Because at the end of the day, you've still got to distinguish yourself in the marketplace and adapting the right technology and using the right tools to accomplish that and keeping the customer, and this seems so self-evident, but creating the customer at the center of your decision-making is what it's all about. And as much as everyone thinks that's self-evident, thinks it's an obvious statement, uh, it's not true that all companies necessarily have that same commitment or that same ability to truly put the customer at the center of their decision-making. Some of that is because uh, they've been around for so many years. There are legacy issues with regard to structure and cost and overhead that make it challenging to make that rapid transformation in the face of the velocity of this change, where other companies just come into the marketplace and they're built that way from the beginning. That's their DNA. And now they run into their same kinds of challenges as they go forward. And I think what we're seeing, even though we spoke about this more than five years ago, we were talking about this convergence of uh, real estate or bricks and mortar and digital or online and and the consumers were sort of more in the center of the playing field and we talked about it i think a bit prematurely because companies weren't there and the technology wasn't there yet but today we really do see that today you really do see some of these companies that were found in the last 10 years digital natives that really are saying you know what we really need real estate and bricks and mortar because that's what customers want and financially speaking you know when it comes to the kinds of products you're shipping and fulfillment, there are real overhead costs that you know you can't replace bricks and mortar for some of that. And similarly, you see many of the bricks and mortar companies saying, we need to edit the portfolio of our real estate. We don't need all this. And so if the game were played 20 years ago in two end zones or two opposite ends of the soccer pitch, today I think it's much more in the middle of the field for all those companies because that's where customers are. So how does the small retailer compete against the big retailers? Well, it's challenging. And you know we started by discussing trade. And so... A number of larger companies made fairly public comments over the course of the last two years in the middle of the trade discussion saying, we will not pass increased costs on to our customers. We're going to negotiate lower or stable prices with our vendors and our suppliers. 
or we're going to distribute costs in other ways across other products or across our margin, but we will not raise prices. And if you're a small retailer, an independent retailer, you don't have that scale, you don't have that negotiating ability with a vendor or a supplier partner, you don't really have a choice. You could be creative about the mix of goods and you can try to shift your supply chain around, but at some point it gets very, very difficult to do that. So it is true that some of this uncertainty and, and some of this disruption uh, disproportionately impacts small independent retailers. I think the ones that we see that are successful are those that have an authentic and a unique story that really distinguish themselves in the marketplace. They serve a unique market. They operate in a unique market. They deliver a particular product. They have a service. They exist across the country. But it requires even more discipline, I think, for the independent retailer than for some of the larger retailers because they just don't have the same capabilities in terms of resources and scale. Personalization has become such a buzzword in terms of what people will do to address a consumer. But it's also really about smaller communities being able to create offers for those communities. What, what trends can we expect to see amplified in that arena? I think that that, that, can, that continues to be an area where there's an enormous amount of opportunity and that companies are going to find ways to make greater investments to deliver those kinds of customized and, and personalized experiences. And our friend Mindy Grossman of WW has been talking about customization and personalization for years in some ways, many years before anyone else really had picked up on or understood uh, some of the things that she was talking about. And increasingly now you see that happening. Even large companies that have uh, relaunched or created or acquired brand new private label brands to create a community the way they associate themselves with particular causes uh, or particular views of the world or particular issues. I think it is true that everyone wants to feel like they're part of something unique that appeals to them and resonates with them. And that's an opportunity to create those engagement points. Again, that I think as their companies here displaying technology, some of them are finding ways to use the data to identify those customers uh, and then to deliver them what they want. So retail is one of the biggest employers in, in our economy. 40, 42 million Americans, one in four in the United States. Okay, so just a few. So 42 <laughs> million people are somehow affiliated with what we're doing here at the big show. But robots are coming. Should they all, like, you know, run for the hills? I mean, are, are, are jobs at retail going to become automated? And what's happening with retail employment? Well, I think you asked a, a very good question. And if we go back through human history when there were technological advances, when we were able to use mechanical and, uh, and other man-made devices to improve certain kinds of labor practices, standards of living increased and working conditions improved and human beings were able to devote more of their brain power to uh, higher value kinds of activities uh, as opposed to things that would be perceived as more uh, manual labor kinds of activities. So I think overall we should be optimistic that that will take place here. I think we also should be realistic that there's going to be some impact and some potential pain as we make this transition that we need to help those that get impacted by this in terms of giving them the skills and the training and the support and the development opportunities that they will need. Kevin Johnson, the Starbucks CEO, was on the program this morning and, and, and talked about this, about automation and the way they're thinking about that in, in their stores. Kevin's point this morning was that as they move increasingly to finding ways to increase the efficiency of the process by adopting 
artificial intelligence and, and some automation, things like that, that what that will do is create more opportunities for uh, their employees to actually engage at a personal level with the customers and to create a more meaningful one-to-one experience. And that, that, so I think for many companies, that will be uh, the opportunity is to take your employees away from the kinds of things that don't add enormous value to the customer experience in terms of friction at a particular point along that continuum of the sales process and make that more efficient and then create an opportunity for them to engage at a more human level to give them the personalized attention, to make them feel as if it's been more convenient, to give them a higher level of service. And that'll have more value and that'll inure both to the benefit of the company, uh, but as well to all those customers. The biggest category of things we buy is food and the supermarket business. We used to have the local supermarket business and now we're seeing all sorts of changes there. And that's an area where people said, oh no, you're going to always want to go in and choose your melon. Yeah. Are, are you seeing changes in, in food retail? Yeah, yeah, we are. And, and you see both, uh, you see grocers and food retailers finding ways to partner, either create their own in-house or find partnerships to allow them to create those you know, shopping experiences where it can be delivered to your home or it can be picked up out in the parking lot that eliminates some of that friction. So I, I think that's going to take, as we've seen already, it's going to take a bit longer to achieve you know, broad adoption because people do need to get used to that. But, but people are getting more accustomed to uh, allowing other folks to make some of those decisions every day. And there are companies, in fact, the next conversation in just a few minutes is going to be with Tim Steiner, who founded Ocado in Britain, which, which does basic you know, grocery fulfillment and, and online. Their trucks, their trucks are like stores. Right. So, I mean, they just they fill up a truck, a truck drives around, and as opposed to a store, it's actually a store on the move, and you've ordered it, and it's yours, and it delivers it. Yeah. No, I've seen some of the automation. So it's coming. It's have. coming. And, and uh, you know, there are early pioneers, and Okada was one of them, and uh, there are, you know, grocers are beginning to adopt those technologies and those automated warehouses. Especially in urban marketplaces. High where, density, yep, yeah. Where it works. The economics people. really work. So one kind of final thing in bringing it home, we talked about all the different things of technology, trade, basically that the marketplace is good right now, the economy is healthy, but you have an amazing perch. So you've been able to see everything going on in these categories. What is the most, oh my goodness, new thing that you've seen come to life in a retail store over the past year? Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. One is this increasing ability to sort of walk in and out of a store with almost no friction in terms of the, the point of sale, almost the cashless kind of experience as more and more companies are experimenting with how we expedite. Because that, you know, you walk into many stores and that can be a bit of a frustration. You stand in the queue and you've got to check out all these items. So we've moved from cashier checkout to self-checkout to now we're going to cashierless checkout and just walk out the door. I think that's fascinating. I think also what's going to be interesting is as we evolve these platforms, what's going to happen with voice technology? And, and I spoke to a, a technologist three or four years ago, someone from Singularity University founder in San Francisco, and he said we're probably 95% of the way towards perfecting voice. And he said in the next five to 10 years, we're going to get that last 5% done, and that will be the same uh, pace of change as going from zero to 95% will be from 96 to 100% or 95 to 99%. And that will transform the way in which we do lots of things. People do already 
speak to their phones, text over there, do a lot of things by voice. But that continues to improve, and I think that's going to dramatically transform uh, the entire commerce experience, especially for retail. With that, I'll say we're here with the chief executive officer of the National Retail Federation, which is really turned into an international platform for technology in keeping people connected virtually in store or anywhere that they want to buy goods anywhere at any time and all of the logistics and underpinnings behind that. So Matt Shea, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure.